Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuha. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper on May 10th. It's a Sunday, mm-hmm. 2020. Mother's Day. Yes, happy Mother's Day, dear. Thank you. Well, of course, there's been a big celebration here. <laughs> and I, I don't know if all the children have been heard from. I'm not sure Zeke has been heard I, from. Well, but. it's not such a big deal since I'm not in the um, deep muck and mire Oh, of motherhood when you're surrounded by kids 24-7 to be taken care of. Are you saying these kids no longer need mothering? Is that what you're saying? Um, no, I'm just saying it's a different kind of mothering. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, in any event, I think you've earned your stripes in terms of mothering. And you're a uh, yeah, certainly a... Um, <laughs> All right, valued just move member, on. member of the clan. <laughs> Happy member, Mother's Day, officially, <laughs> for all you do. Um, so, you know, I thought we'd start with a quote. We never do this, but there was a quote in the Times. Here's the quote from Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Quote, I'm sorry, Chief, I did it again. End of quote. This is Sotomayor, after a few minutes of silence during the Supreme Court's arguments by conference call on Tuesday, Sotomayor had forgotten to unmute her microphone for the second day in a row. So there you go. Uh, at the highest levels of government, the Supreme Court, people continue to run up to little issues with respect to technology, in that case, interrupting a Supreme Court argument. Uh, and it's kind of uh, unavoidable. It goes with the territory. We're all kind of adjusting to being on technology all the time. And of course, the biggest technology for which adjustments... Wait, to, wait, 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 wait. That's your quote? That's the quote. Sorry, Chief, right. did it again. I'm going to have to vet these quotes. Okay. It's from quote now of the on. Day. The New York Times. I thought it was going to be something inspirational. Oh, God, no. Not from Sotomayor. Uh, but the, so is, let's, let me jump immediately to Zoom. Because there's one semi-interesting article which I'll cover, but one really interesting article which is that you have something to say about. And there's an article in the Times uh, titled, Does This Bookcase Make Me Look Smart? And, of course, what they're talking about is background for Zoom. And the uh, chosen background for Zoom to make the uh, speaker or the participant in the call look smart turns out to be a bookcase. And uh, it was a total coincidence because when I do my Zoom calls, it's in front of a bookcase. I happen to choose that by happenstance. But they say that the people invest seriously in that notion, that that gives you authority and credibility. It doesn't make any difference what the books are, although people are great pains to try to figure out sometimes what the books are. But everyone from Joe Biden on down, uh, not everyone, but quite a few people think hard about whether they can get a bookcase background for Zoom Yeah. to make them seem more Yeah, I'm always leery of the guys who have like the matchy-matchy books. Yes. And you're like, what did you just send away? <laughs> but I mean, maybe there's some very legit stuff. I don't know. Maybe law books have all the same binding or something. Uh, but uh, Yes, that is true, actually. Sometimes uh, it looks a little Well, I'm looking fake. in the article here because they do actually go so far as to identify some of the books. I won't do all of them. I'll just do the most interesting one, which is that uh, Melissa Erico was uh, planted in front of a bookcase uh, for the purpose of a call, and they identified a book called Irish Erotic Art. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Behind Melissa Erica. Yes. Maybe yes. it belonged to her husband, uh, McEnroe. Yeah. It, right. Yes, it could have been. And now we're now we're really drilling down. Now, of course, we saw Melissa Erica. We like Melissa, Melissa Erica. So uh, we're all for Irish Erotic Art. More power to her. Uh, but you had the much more interesting Zoom article, I thought. 
which is clearly <laughs> entitled, interestingly, Why Zoom is Terrible. Yeah, Zoom is terrible uh, to some extent. Um, uh, and mainly because uh, of the way the images are delivered. And because of the digital delivery, mm-hmm. I'm not too good at this. Go ahead. Explaining I'll, this I'm technology. Listening. My, um, there are appeal. gaps and distortions and delays. Right. Okay. And we know about the delays because even when we're, um, I mean, Zoom's not the only one with this. Even mm-hmm. when we're watching the TV news or something and all the anchors are, you know, at, from their homes right. and they do an interview. There's this ridiculous delay mm-hmm. that uh, really disconnects the interview mm-hmm. and uh, makes it seem not at all fluid or, you know, kind of takes away from the context, really. Right. Um, so uh, this is the case definitely with Zoom. And so that makes it hard. Your brain, in general, your brain is always filling in gaps and smoothing things over. It's not that we've talked about this before in terms of uh, just... Anything you look at, when your brain is looking at something, it's not seeing, it's not concentrating on everything at the same time. It's painting in things it already has figured out, Mm -hmm. you know, should be there or whatever. So the problem with Zoom is um, if your brain uh, can't, uh, the way this article puts it, our our brains are prediction generators. When there are delays or facial expressions are frozen or out of sync, okay, that confuses the brain. The brain doesn't want know what to do. The brain has to work twice as hard. Mm-hmm. So you get exhausted trying to figure this out. Um, and uh, whether subconscious or conscious, we're having to do more work right. because aspects of our predictions are not being confirmed and that can be exhausting. And, uh, you know, they, they do have a quote here uh, from a, an adjunct professor at Columbia Business School who says, yeah, uh, I've noticed not only in my students, but in myself, a tendency to flag. It gets hard to concentrate on the grid and it's hard to think in a robust yeah. way. But, and, you know, I really was intrigued to hear that because I was feeling that, but uh, I didn't realize it was actually a thing. It's a thing. And, and the other thing that's very related to what you're talking about that manifests itself in direct communications when you're talking to somebody and you're trying to exchange thoughts um, is that because of the delay, the somewhat dysfunctional Zoom communication, the not 100% pixels, not 100% message, whatever you want to call it, the subtle cues of a person's expression aren't communicated and aren't picked up. And it turns out that that's a big part of communication. Uh, According to this article, that when two people talk face-to-face, your brain is picking up all kinds of signals, very, very subtle from a person's facial expression. And not only on on top of that, and mimicking some of those expressions. That that's a mode of communication that cements right, the bond. Mirroring. Yeah, yeah, mirror. That's right. That's the phrase they use. And, mirroring. And and synchronous mirroring. Synchronous mirroring. And okay. boy, it's easy that's for a... you to say, but yes. <laughs> and the and that goes completely out the window. Well, it creates Zoom. one of the things that does is yeah. uh, or two of the things really is creates a sense of connection yeah. and empathy. Exactly. So I feel like one of my one of the key things I need to do in a classroom yeah. is create connection and 
empathy. Right. And the technology right? won't let to, you do to it. To take them on that bridge to listening to what I want to have to what I want to say. And uh, if you can't do it, um, if you're not if your brain can't do it, it's frustrating. Uh, number one, and it, again, impedes right. that. Connection. And they it actually the communication. They go far to say. I mean, you don't have a choice for your class. You have to use something visual, I guess, presume. But they go so far to say that if you want to have a meaningful conversation with somebody, uh, which is satisfying, use the telephone. Use yes. the telephone. Yes. Don't use Zoom. Right. Just chat with somebody on which, the phone, not even FaceTime, but which, just chatting. Which was then, shocking to me. Then you're not reacting reacting to uh, bad cues. Right. But here's the problem. Yeah. It's still a problem because. Uh, on my Zoom lectures, yeah. I don't force the students to oh, uh, right. show put, their put video their image. Yeah. Okay, um, so that's another problem. I, and it it's hard for me. I can't. Uh, it's hard for me to talk to a black box. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, too. So uh, that, that's not really a solution the, in this situation. You need a visual. I need the clues. The yeah, visual you need, clues. You need the clues but, and but, but, uh, there was one thing else I wanted to say that. Um, they also mention here that, frankly, uh, most people are pretty focused on their own image, yeah. more so than the other right, images. Right, and that, um, that impedes communication. That, that impedes, impedes the empathetic function and yeah. impedes eye contact. Yeah. So this is all uh, this is all problem. In some ways, uh, Zoom is a great fun thing. Yeah. Uh, but in other ways, it doesn't really answer right. all the needs we have uh, in trying to work. Remotely, yeah, they compare it to a situation where you have a real piece of fruit versus an artificial, artificially constructed piece of fruit, and uh, you eat the artificial constructed fruit, and it's going to get you. It's, uh, it's not <laughs> not nearly as nourishing. It doesn't really work. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That these you're saying my my Zoom lectures are not nearly as nourishing. I think the technology that's limits. Sad it. to think, it's, depending on it's more nourishing than considering they didn't how at all. hard I worked on them. Well, um, all right. So here's something which I thought was really fascinating. Uh, because there is all this talk about testing, and there's really, it, it, of all the aspects of this, the one that in which no progress has been made, or the, the, the very barest progress has been made, is testing. Uh, and you wonder how it could even succeed, or if it's even important. But in any event... Oh, God, yeah, it seems crazy, doesn't it? You can, I mean, we talk about, like, the president and his staff being tested every yeah, single day, it's still, which is the only way... It doesn't you, get you anywhere. You know... Not that I even believe that's actually happening, but uh, it's really the only thing you can do because yeah. you can always get it, you know, two hours after you right. had your last test. And, and it's so, very difficult to get the right. tests out, so, and the tests are very invasive. So what and clever mess- solution have you come up with? Well, it's not me, but it is a very clever solution. It turns out that if you, if, if you check the sewer system, you can figure out if an area, even a small community, has the virus. And why is that? Because uh, the genetic material associated with COVID-19 works its way through your system pretty quickly and comes out in waste. And as a result, if you go to a particular community sewage system and check the wastewater uh, and you see, you will find remnants of uh, COVID-19 in an outbreak a week before anyone reports any disease. That is amazing. It is amazing. So was this like on the front page or something? No, it's not on the front page, but it's, it's was in the it, it was in today's Sunday's New York Times? It was on Tuesday's Science Times on page Tuesday's 7. Tuesday's Science Buried Times? Buried on page 7. 
And, but, and I haven't heard it mentioned at all. That's crazy. Yeah, well, wait a minute. It's not a secret. For decades... Again, I know, but why isn't article, somebody seizing on that? They might be. For decades, public health workers have looked in sewage for signs of viral outbreaks. The WHO, the much maligned World, World Health Organization, has monitored polio viruses, excuse me, polio viruses this way. So it's not new, right? It's sort of old technology. What's new is, is what they're able to tell from the waste. They've improved that quite a bit. It used to be much harder to do than they can do it now. But having said that, they've got a way to do it. It's been around for a little while. So Netherlands used it very effectively to identify any hotspots, any outbreaks before any were reported. And it has now been used sporadically or less sporadically, depending on the country, in Australia, France, Spain, and now the United States. Uh, you just go to the waste and you can do it. And you can, obviously, if it's a bigger city uh, and it's a bigger system, your conclusions are more general. But you can do this on a very narrow basis, on a community or municipal basis, and identify hotspots before uh, they really develop in a way. So, for example, what might you do? You might get relax some of the measures that are uh, in place right now. You might monitor the situation by checking the waste order, say everything's okay, everything's well, okay. Well, you would know where to, but, where but to send the town of West Winter has a problem. Yes. Like you would know everything. You, you would know a lot. I don't even think it's you need to explain that. that that's obvious. Never right. has poop Check. been so important. fascinating it's, and important. That reminds me I of that guy. I would say never. I think that's a strong statement. Oh, you generally find poop fascinating? I, that's the other I, You know, that's true. We do have our naturalist friends are always checking yeah. out scat. Um, of various right? birds and animals. You can see, you know, if you find uh, owl scat in the woods, I don't know, is, is it called scat for owls? I don't know. But if you find the owl poop, you can see, oh, yeah, you know, the bones from a mouse they ate yeah, or something like right. that. And, uh, well, you know, get let's not idea. get too far off. But, right. Uh, but, uh, oh, and, you know, this just makes me think of uh, a guy we were talking about the other day. Remember we met uh, that really fun couple on one of our bike rides? We met a really fun couple from Australia. Yeah. And the guy was a big, tall guy. Yeah. And, he was in uh, waste were, or something. He was in wastewater treatment. In Australia, yeah. yeah. And uh, every time we went by some treatment uh, place uh, on the bike ride, he would be looking, you know, he could be an important guy. Yeah. <laughs> there, yes. But look, all kidding aside, it's kind of fascinating. It's a great resource. It is. I think that's, a, that's an excellent uh, discovery and Again, I'm shocked that uh, they're not doing like well, uh, major doing announcements about it on all these silly TV shows well, that are on about uh, maybe COVID-19. Maybe it's, it's a little bit off color or something like that. They're not comfortable talking. They don't about want to talk about. They don't want to talk shit. <laughs> oh, very good. Um, but anyway, you got to um, segue from that to seafood. Yeah. Seafood. Yeah, actually, well, you know, just briefly, uh, because maybe this is getting boring, all the things that are happening as a result of the pandemic, but one of them is uh, people are buying more seafood, right? okay, because they love to eat seafood when they go out, they can't have it when they go out, mm -hmm. and so they're buying it to cook at home. Mm -hmm. Also, they have time to figure out how to cook it, and uh the Times had an article about this silver lining for seafood. Now, the poor suppliers, the wholesale suppliers for the restaurants are, of course, up a creek because they don't have anybody to sell to. So they're trying to, you know, some of them have hooked up, uh, you know, little retail shops in a space mm -hmm. where normally they would uh, be selling wholesale, mm -hmm. etc. And some of these guys who have put together um, sales are doing very, very well right. and are selling shocking things, right. okay? Um, 
fish collars. Okay, Shad Row. Right. All right, Shad Row. Uh, um, this one guy, Mr. Damasco, uh, who uh, has the Peerless Fish uh, Supply Company in Brooklyn, said uh, he he ran out in one day. He had sixty pounds of Shad Row. That's a lot of Shad you know? Row. Yeah. That's a Shad. Well, you know. that's pretty close to caviar, isn't it? Uh, well, no, well um, you, you can cook it a variety of ways. Right. You can serve it a variety of ways. But anyway, it's not uh, it's not tilapia. You know? No, no, it's not tilapia. Well, that, yes. <laughs> and, and, he's, and also, uh, he had put out an octopus as sort of a conversation and, piece, and, and, sold it. Well, you know, Boom. Pick up on your um, point, not tilapia. I mean, that's the point. Tilapia is just a block of fish that you can buy frozen or fresh, and it seems easy to prepare. But they talk there about people buying whole fish. And there are pictures of him with a red snapper yeah, or something. People are figuring it out. People don't even order whole fish, let alone cook whole fish. Well, but they've got the time yeah. to figure it out now. The other thing that I think is key is because nobody can go anywhere, everybody can sit down and eat at the same time. Yeah. So you can make more ambitious, uh, time-sensitive things mm. and every, and just say, okay, we're eating now, well, yeah. not have to reheat things probably uh, get this kind throughout of thing the day and so forth. I guess. So it's, and they're also, he's also selling frozen fish. Restaurant guys don't like to buy frozen fish. Mm-hmm. So he, but he's selling a ton of frozen fish to people, right. you know, um, so they can uh, stock up. And also the, you know, smoked salmon, salt cod, and the things that are preserved. So that's really, that's fun because of course, uh, fish is great for you. Um, it's still, as you can imagine, not enough. No, he's not doing the business he did before. Right. It's a, it's a, but, uh, but it's, he's doing it's business. something. He's doing business. He's doing and business. he also said, um, there's some, you know, some things you do not about the money. Okay. Um, so, uh, and, um, then also another th- another group doing uh, well in this situation. Not that see- seafood guys aren't quite doing well, but they're doing um, small farms. Mm-hmm. Some of these small farms uh, who can actually who don't uh, depend necessarily on restaurants, but sell in farmers markets. Farmer mar- markets are still open, it seems, in most places, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. Right. And um, the small farms that have a, a Variety of things to offer are selling out. They really? of of their like they're in their booth in the farmers market. You know they're sold out by twelve fifteen really? or two o'clock. I wonder if um, we have that going on here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. We we will have to. Uh, we've been going to a bigger market, right? Uh, uh, but uh, kind a, of a farm market, fresh but produce bigger, market. Yeah. Then, yeah. Um, but uh, so. That's been causing quite an excitement. And, you know, there's a lot of stories that go with it. One is the story of uh, Sang Lee Farm. And uh, the manager there, Lucy Senezak, reports insane crowds. This is out on the North Fork. Oh, really? And that's relevant to that idea of the great exodus from New York City to rental homes and uh, secondary uh, vacation homes. Right, because let me just put this, this is what I think you're saying, is that this time of year you wouldn't see that many people in the North Fork under normal circumstances. They're out there, they need food, and uh, they want to get it from her. So they've been revamping, uh, you know, their business from the restaurant aspect, again, to, you know, uh, creating like a CSA situation Mm -hmm. and and creating pre-packed, 
uh, boxes. You know, our CSA, we go, we pick out what we want um, in the volumes uh, we're permitted for that week. They're pre-packing. And just uh, you know, throwing them at well, the that, people that, that as they go by. The restaurant point's interesting. I did, I saw, seen an article. I didn't bring it to your attention, but there was an article about the fact that when we spoke a few weeks ago about all this food that was grown for restaurants that was being destroyed, the government has now initiated certain programs to reclaim that food and get that restaurant food to food banks and the like. So people are recognizing that you have to repurpose uh, restaurant food. Right. But there's also the problem that some of that food is yeah. tough to repurpose, uh, especially microgreens mm-hmm. for the very high-end restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, there's not the same kind of demand right. uh, on a local level for those kinds of things. So you know, there's also discussion of um, a um, business, a well, it's a um, oh, what's it called here? Here, a duck. Um, duck business, Crescent Duck Farm, Mm -hmm. okay, and largely, again, they sell to restaurants, they've really had to scale back and, uh, you know, have been able to do a little bit of business uh, on um, a retail Mm -hmm. level, and he notes that some of his customers have exploded. He has one uh, customer who sells um, uh, rotisserie duck Mm -hmm. to go, and their orders They're doing very well. yeah. are doing very well, are huge com- in comparison, have gone from like 10 boxes of duck a week to 25, but the guy says, I really need to sell 3,000 oh, wow. a week. Um, so, you know, he's limping along, but uh, Taylor Knapp, the proprietor of Peconic Escargot, a Long Island farm that, surpri- that supplies restaurants with fresh snails right. is being pretty cool about it uh, because uh, it although the snail market has collapsed yeah. I mean people are not really whipping up the escargot they at are. home oh, uh, hear that Zeke yeah. uh, you know Zeke is a great fan of the escargot but um, the whole so as far as he's concerned um, the uh, snail business is on hold yeah. and uh, but fortunately enough the kind of snails they raise have a five-year lifespan. Oh, good. So uh, they can hang out for a while. The problem is that even when the restaurants open back up, I think what everybody's nervous about, how this will all change. Yeah, I don't okay. think it's going to change. Will the, will the high-end restaurants uh, survive? Yeah. Will they be, you know, will people still be wanting snails? Well, I thought you were going to say something about selling snails at a snail's pace, but it didn't get that chance. Uh, all right. Well, that's interesting. Uh, so in terms of uh, television, a um, couple of things. There's a, there was an article about a show that we were regular watchers of, uh, COVID-19 notwithstanding. We've been uh, fans for a long time. And it turns out it's a very popular show uh, called Sex Education, recommended, believe it or not, to us by Zeke, our youngest, who interesting on this Mother's Day to observe that Zeke would recommend to his mother a show called Sex Education, but there you have it. Yeah, apparently um, it debuted in 2019, which is when we started to, to watch yeah, it. Yeah, we were on it That's right unheard away. of for us. So we're on it usually takes us years. Yes, well, and we have Zeke to thank. Uh, it exploded in popularity, yeah, okay? They and they, they mention here, uh, one over audiences young and old with its breezy charm and unvarnished depictions of teen sexuality. Yeah. 
And it's about, it takes place in a school, I'm beginning to think it's Australia now, but it's sort of in a UK Commonwealth type environment, kids in high school, and um, it's comic, but it's about their experiences socially and particularly sexually uh, with a lot of quirky characters. It stars Asa Butterfield as sort of the protagonist who's high school age, but also importantly, Gillian Anderson is his mother who happens to be, guess what, a sex therapist. And of course, he's the one with as many problems with anybody, as anybody, even as he counsels other teenagers with advice that he drew from uh, living with his mother. So it's kind of a, it's, just, it's a quirky, interesting series because it goes in crazy directions every episode. Well, and somehow we've mentioned works. it before. Yeah. I mean, it's not pornographic. No, no, no. But it would, but it's it would qualify but it's as, you know, travel porn. Right. Because the settings can be beautiful. Yeah. Uh, the Gillian Anderson oh, the houses, especially, yeah. yeah, travel porn. Get it? You know, it's, I got it's it. stuff you love but, but to this, just this, this, look at and dream of. But this, and so it, it is beautifully shot. Yeah, okay. But, but, um, and it's ridiculously graphic. Yeah, I'm not always yeah, up the sex for graphic. teenage sexuality. Or anybody. Okay. Yes. It was hard enough going through it the first time. Right. But um, it's what is great about it is it's about relationships. Right. First and foremost. And communication. Right. And, uh, and it turns interesting corners. Right. Uh, the music is really, great, and it's it's the fun. music is great, but but it's you, well but the written. Article shows and it. here's the weird thing: it is right, the weird thing. Lead writer, a kid, thirty-two years old. Lori Nunn now, but put it together when she was twenty. In her twenties, in her twenties, because this show is as well written as anything. This is as mature, yeah, and as nuanced right. as you know anything we watch. It's, it's miles ahead of most shows you see on television or streaming. And especially comic shows are somehow just are totally goofy. And this show is not goofy. Uh, so she saw, I was as stunned as you were that the person this young put this together, also with no experience. This is her first yes, show. Yes, yes, yes. And it, it's all her. She's amazing. Yeah. She's just amazing. What's her name again? Lori Nunn. And she grew up in Australia, basically. Uh, went to school in Australia. I guess she was in the UK in Australia. But went to school, went to college in Australia. And that's where she learned about film. And studied American film and television for what that's worth. But, you know, amazing stuff. Great show. And 40 million people are watching it. We thought we were the only people watching it. I never heard anyone no, mention it. No, we did not think we I were the only so. people watching it. Me and you. It. The only ones. You know? But uh, it's fantastic success. And uh, as Zeke said, season two even better than season one. It's Yeah, it's good. Uh, so then last night to further... As opposed to Killing Eve. As, yeah, which is trailing off. Trailing off. It's season three. It's We're in season three with Killing Eve, well, and I, right. I'm losing my interest. Yes. Well, that's that happens. Um, yeah, but that was that's a they're on a tightrope because the sort of they're trying to balance the grotesque and the graphic violence with the comic edge, and it's very hard to do. And they uh, they maintain and the teenage sexuality is not hard. Snap, apparently. Uh, look, it, it's it, every, we watch that show. There are some cringeworthy moments, and then you know we're rewarded. It, it seems to work. But uh, further investing in popular culture. Last night we dialed up the uh, latest Seinfeld special. It's Seinfeld doing stand up at the Beacon Theater. Uh, it's brand new, uh, and it's Seinfeld as he emphasizes in the uh, stand up routine uh, at the age of sixty five. I guess he just turned sixty six. And uh, he does reflect on how that changes his perspective uh, and uh, on everything else that's going on in his life. So what did you think of that? I thought it was a snore. Yeah, it wasn't great. 
It wasn't great. Look, there were some moments that we were laughing. But here's here are the weird things for me. Yeah. Okay. It seemed dated. Yes, it was unbelievable. It seemed unbelievable. It seemed. Dated. I said to you, it seemed like I was watching one of the old, uh, you know, Borscht Belt comedians yeah, on Mason. Ed Sullivan. It was like Jackie Mason on Ed Sullivan. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and maybe, and I said that to Sadie, our daughter, and she said, "Well, maybe it was sort of an homage no, to that no. uh, style this is what or he's something." Got. This is but what it, it was a little bit. Um, it was a little bit boring. It was clearly directed at an older audience, um, uh, which know. is. Is fine, you know, um, but we're the older audience. That's, that's and it wasn't not, that funny. Yeah. Well, you know what? Look, it it was. I was just surprised because he's very polished. He's obviously very smart. He's been very successful. Although, frankly, I never thought he was great at stand up. He's always been kind of mild in stand up, but his great success was the television show. But in fact, I just expected a lot more because he put so much into it, and he's regarded as iconic. And the fact of the matter is. That even if we're the target audience and we're saying, eh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he had certainly some funny lines, but, you know, it's like Alan King funny lines from 35 years ago. And there are a few of them, you know, complaining yeah. about his wife, or whatever. Uh, and, and there were two things I came away with. One is, I thought even, maybe I'm reading too much of this, I'm saying to myself, he must understand that this is not working. And, uh, or not at the level that he would seek to have. I mean, he's, he's, he takes himself fairly seriously and he ought to. Uh, and I read an interview in which they asked him, are you going to do another one of these? And he was not, noncommittal. And I'll tell mm-hmm. you right now, I, he must have felt walking off the stage that, you know, the time has come. He doesn't have it. But I'll t- he, it, 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 he can't do this again. You can't do that again. It was just very mediocre. But the other thing I asked myself is, you know, if, if it's inevitable with a certain age, you can't communicate, whatever. Um, could someone else, could you, could I do any better? Or is it just if you're 65, 66, you're just so riveted to uh, the past that you get to, got to step aside? And I will, I thought that's an important question. And, yeah. and I will answer that question. Right. Okay. For you, and you won't, you won't agree with this. So I'll, I'll just go jump over to me. I definitely could have done better. I definitely could do better. You give me three weeks, I could do better at the Beacon Theater than Seinfeld did. I could be funnier, I could be fresher, I could be faster, and I could get people going crazy compared to what he was doing. I'm just telling you, he's just worn out. He's uh, he's just stuck in the past. I don't know what it is, but I think... uh, So it's disappointing. It doesn't mean you can't watch it. You can watch it, you'll get a few laughs, but you come to your own conclusions. But uh, I wouldn't have great expectations. Yeah, we've seen other comedy shows recently what did we see recently well Mike Birbiglia yeah on Broadway certainly right yeah which was funnier but that was in person in fairness but uh, anyway so I was uh, I was a little disappointed disappointed he just just seemed kind of old and cranky yeah and uh, you're right it was you know kind of I'll work on my own stuff I'll have something for you All right, good we just got a couple things left a couple three things left yeah, so in case you have still some uh, unused time and energy yeah. to be creating something fabulous yeah. in your own home, yeah. uh, turns out you can make your own yeast. That's right. You go to the store to buy yeast to bake bread. There's no yeast. Are you out of business? No, you're not. No. You can make your own yeast. Yeah, yes, I mean, you've heard of stuff like a sourdough starter. Right. And somebody inherits it from their mother. Right. And they keep it for decades. Well, but you can you can make your own. Yeah. Apparently, you know, and 
yeast grows everywhere and you can just grow some using water and flour. Yeah. And, and, uh, and we won't go into the details because we, we wouldn't be able to communicate it reliably. But the Times does make a case that this is entirely doable. And you can make your own yeast. But, you know, the funny, there was funny something at the end of this article. You mentioned sourdough starter and handing it down. So they quote the, this person who says that uh, a Ms. Christensen says she plans to have her sourdough starter persist long after she's gone. She has one grandchild, a nine-year-old boy. Quote, he has been told that he is going to have to be the keeper of the sourdough, she said, because there's no one else to pass it on. He said, okay. So she's all set, the nine-year-old. This, this just tells you that the New York Times is desperate for material. Yes. Okay, because that's not even the same subject, really. I know. You know, they're, they're spending you half the article own. on this woman right. and how she's handing it down. Headline and they're trying is, to convince you you can make your own. Make what, your own sourdough. All right. Let's, let's all go right. on to the next subject. Get, get on with it. This is also something going, this is back to Jerry Seinfeld's heyday. This goes back to the 70s. Yeah. In the New York Times sports section, Such the, page, <laughs> the page, that's called the sports section, yeah. um, there was mentioned that Swiss can't go to gym, so they go to the woods. Right. And, uh, of course, they're all going and using the Vita Parkour course. Which is, yes. Which okay. Is, Which is, you know, when you go in the woods or you're on some trail in uh, a park, uh, Woodland Park, and the, you come across these little like structures and some little picture of what you should be stopping right, and right, doing right, at right, that right. point. It's an exercise okay. station. There are various exercise stations made out of wood that are strategically placed along these various courses in these parks. So every 500 meters or every 1,000 meters, there's a place to do push-ups, there's a place to do pull-ups, there's a place to stretch, whatever it is. And we saw this a lot in the 70s, maybe the early 80s. Yeah, I mean, I definitely remember it in Rock Creek Rock Park. Rock Creek Park in Maryland. In Maryland. And I think it was other places. Um, and every once in a while, you just come across this stuff. Sometimes it's not in great repair. Yeah. And it just looks like some relic right. from uh, years ago. I think it's always it's in mystifying, yeah. But, you know. Well, but, but that's what they say. All right. So, first of all, it's, it starts in uh, Switzerland. Right, in 1968. No you got a life insurance company yeah. uh, to finance. Oh, wow. Put it, setting these things up all over. That's a great tie-in, right. isn't it? And actually, the Swiss have sort of kept up with it, and they, they actually have people who manage these courses right. and make sure they get repaired and updated. And they have been noticing that suddenly... They're crowded well, they because can't, you can't go to the gym. Can't go to the gym. You, you know, you're sick to death of doing sit-ups in your living room. Right. And so you go out and... Uh, you take you a know, jog or you take yeah. a walk and then you stop and do some push-ups and then right. you take a and jog and then you do some pull-ups. They have yeah. interviews with people saying, I'm usually out here, I'm the only one. You know, yeah, now there's a few crowded. people running by. Right. Now everybody, there's a line to use the, you know, the bench. Well, that, that's interesting because that is, they say, this is what sort of made this less popular, that it was starting to catch on a little bit. And then people got into fitness more, and they had all the gyms, and the gyms were superior. Right. It was popular and then they stopped using 70s and early 80s, yeah. and then we had fantastic gyms right. opening up like crazy and, uh, right. with deluxe things. Yeah, they're, so they're overwhelmed. This. Yeah. Look, I never thought much of this kind of stuff. But, uh, if, well, it always seemed kind of off-putting, and it seemed like, I'm not sitting on that. I'll get splinters, oh. you know. <laughs> um, but and it did. It, they also discussed that uh, for a while they were popular in Germany as well. Yeah. But uh, the Germans didn't really uh, take care 
of theirs. And oh, so well, the, the Swiss run they top got of that to, kind of stuff. Yeah, the Swiss, you would expect them yes. to keep it up better. Right. Anyway, part of the great aspect of the article that we can't really show uh, in the podcast is a wonderful picture from the 70s oh, do of people, people lined up yes. using one of those courses. Right. And of course, they have those fabulous shorts, uh, right. the super short shorts right. from the 70s that we used to wear for exercise. Um, so that's worth the price of admission if you can find the article online. All right. So people, everyone's been watching The Last Dance, which is a series on the Chicago Bulls uh, championship basketball team, which is on ESPN on Sunday nights. And it is pretty good. Um, but you, 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 it's important not to lose sight of the fact that that's just one team and one success and one player, Michael Jordan. It's, it's, that's what they're talking about. But there are other great champions. And the, the great champion in New York, uh, which is certainly worth celebrating with the New York Knicks, were, believe it or not, once a great team. No one remembers that. It's a hell of a long time ago. 50-year anniversary this week of the Knicks championship team in 1970. Like and with Bill Bradley With and Bill people? Bradley. With Bill Bradley. Dollar uh, Bill? Dollar Bill Bradley, of course, who went to prison. Well, here's what's great about that team. Look, I, I could go on for 40 minutes. I know you'd like me to, but I'm not going to do that. But I'll go on for just a few minutes. That was a <laughs> Steal yourself. That was a transcendent deal. That was a big, big deal. And um, the Knicks hadn't been successful much before then. They certainly haven't been successful much after then. They won another championship three years later, and that's it. Um, but the story is this. Uh, the story is about Will Reed as much as anything else. The team mm -hmm. had, uh, you know, Dick Barnett was a really smart player. was the shooting guard. Uh, and Wolf Frazier, who became Clyde, who was a great player, who became an announcer for the team, a great fashion icon. It had Bill Bradley, as you mentioned, Princeton Rhodes Scholar. It had Dave DeBusher, who became not an owner, but the commissioner of the American Basketball Association. Wow. And yet the leader of the team, indisputably, was a guy from Grambling named Willis Reed. Mm -hmm. And all these guys looked up to Willis Reed. And Willis Reed, all Willis Reed was, was the best basketball player in the world. And in 1969-70, Willis Reed won the most valuable player. He was the most valuable player of the season. He was the most valuable player of the All-Star game. He was the most valuable player of the playoffs, all-defense team. There's only one other player ever to do all those things, and that is, of course, Michael Jordan. But he was at that level. Mm -hmm. And what happened in that series was the Knicks were in the final against the Lakers, who were a great team, and had Wilt Chamberlain. And, of course, Wilt Chamberlain is an iconic figure, seven feet tall, Willis Reed had to deal with a guy who was several inches taller than him. And in the game five, in the series tied two to two, Willis Reed tore his thigh muscle. And he had to leave the game. And somehow, um, somehow, even though the game was almost tied when he left the game at the beginning of the third quarter, he could not return. Uh, the Knicks managed to win that game. And I remember listening to that game on the radio. And I'll just inject this quickly. These games were not on television locally. Mm -hmm. You had local blackouts then. Mm -hmm. So you had to listen to the Marv Albert on the radio. And I, there's no sporting event I remember more than that game. <laughs> really? And I will tell you, by coincidence, it happens to be the same date as the Kent State Massacre. Actually. Mm -hmm. But I remember that. I won't give you the detail, but I could replay everything that happened in that game, including Dave DeBusher guarding Will Chamberlain, which was crazy. Dave DeBusher was 6'6". Um, and they somehow won that game. So they're up 3-2. They go to Los Angeles for game seven. Well, Bulls can't play. Um, they get killed. Uh, Chamberlain scores 46 points. They uh, come back to New York for game seven. Is Willis going to play? Is Willis going to play? And uh, now 
it's all out. No one knew then. There was no internet then. In the locker room before the game, they came out with literally, which is described by Phil Jackson, of all people, who was also on that team, who was a sub for the Knicks, mm-hmm. a foot-long needle, which they put into his thigh. And he came out of the tunnel. And uh, let me find this. The place went crazy. The place went absolutely crazy. He was going to play. And they have an uh, interview, quick interview with uh, Spike Lee, who says he was at the game at the age of 13. I don't know how he got a ticket, but good for him. And he said that, this is a quote, When Willis Reed came out on the court, I thought my ears were going to explode, Lee said. Both teams were on the court, and when that happened, the Laker team stopped and turned around. Lee says, I talked to Jerry West recently, who was on the Lakers, and he denied that happened. Lee says, I love Jerry, but I trust my 13-year-old eyes. <laughs> and sure enough, he came to play. Uh, first time Knicks got the ball, they handed it to Reed. He took a jump shot, it went in. Second time they got the ball, handed it to Reed, took a jump shot, it went in. He played a total of 20 minutes in the whole game. He could hardly walk. And the Knicks won the game in the championship. And the reason is because of Walt Frazier. Walt Frazier scored 36 points, had 19 assists, and seven rebounds. It was the greatest final seven-game performance in the history of basketball and still is. And he was only playing against Sherry West. So I heard um, Willis Reed interviewed two days ago. He's 77 years old. Hmm. And they asked him about that. He was not a big talker. And he said, well, obviously Walt won the game for us. But um, he said, I was telling Frazier all year that he was a great player. And he was a kid from a small school, and he, he knew he was good. But I kept telling him, you're as good as anybody in the NBA. You're a great, great player. And in that night, he was the best player in the league. So the Knicks won. Uh, they all went insane. And uh, it was a great championship. And Willis Reed was, uh, you know, an iconic sports figure. I mean, they, they quote David Stern here saying... Uh, of course, David Stern's president. He's a New York kid. So he grew up watching that team. And when he uh, left as the commissioner of the NBA, he said to me, there's no team like the Nick team. The idea that you had Bill Bradley from Princeton and Willis Reed from Grambling. Um, mm-hmm. Such a great team. Uh, you can really uh, replicate that. So in any event, uh, that to me is as fascinating because I'm a homer as anything in uh, the last dance about the Chicago Bulls and Willis Reed, at least for a few years, was right up there with Michael Jordan later accomplished. So uh, there you go. All right. All right. So that's all we have. Uh, but it's quite a bit when you think about it. And, uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. Time to go... Um, celebrate Mother's Day. Celebrate Mother's Day. Yes. Exactly. And you're not cooking right. dinner tonight. I'm not cooking dinner. All right. I'm not cooking dinner. All right. So uh, we'll see you next week. Okay. With- with Tamsin Dan, read the paper. I'm, what do I say now? I'm Tamsin Granger. And I'm Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. All right. See you next week.